Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Fargo and the Big Lebowski. Hello, hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're going to do some Coen Brothers films. We're going to do Fargo and The Big Lebowski. We have really only talked about No Country for Old Men, I think, for the Coen Brothers. And Yeah, uh, we've touched on these a little bit, but not much. I mean, they're some of our favorite filmmakers. We love all of their movies. They they have like a diverse range of genres that they tap into. They can do comedy. They can do drama. They can even do a little action. They do a little espionage and burn after reading. So every, their films are so... Uh, uh, they're versatile filmmakers. You know, they can do anything. They have hardcore beloved fans all over the world. Some of their films are cult classics, like Lebowski is definitely. Are. Yeah, Fargo, I think, is just a, a better movie all around, but I think Lebowski is really damn good. It's a, I think it's more of a cult status than Fargo, if you know what I mean. I think, I, I mean, I'm not sure which one I like better. It's hard to pick. I really like Lebowski. I think, for me, I like Fargo better. I think it's a better movie, but I think Lebowski is way funnier. I think, yeah. They're I think, both very funny, but Lebowski's so you, hilarious. You could say Lebowski is much more entertaining, although Fargo yeah. is hysterical. Yeah. But I just think, like, because Lebowski has the music and it has, like, you know, just Jeff Bridges and, and John Goodman are just amazing together. So I think that it is a little more entertaining. And, For sure. And it's more ridiculous and a little bit more creative with the filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, Fargo is just more, the setting of it being so mundane in Minnesota and in North Dakota, no offense if you're from those places, it's just the, the small towns they're in. The, well, that's the whole point. The, yeah. yeah, I know, the mundaneness, yeah. it makes it seem like a, a different world on a different planet sometimes, which is like, I wouldn't, it's less entertaining, but more interesting, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, because what the Coen brothers have always done uh, going back to their first film, Blood Simple, which is really excellent. If anyone hasn't seen their first film, it's really amazing. It's, That's also what Frances McDormand got like yeah, well-known for. Her first movie. Yeah. It has one of the most amazing final acts I've ever seen. It's just insane. Check it out. It's on Criterion Channel right now, or you can rent it. What the Coens have always done is casting locals. So in every kind of Coen brother movie, you'll see, maybe except for Burn After Reading, you will see local actors and they do this purposely because they want you to feel like you're in that world you're in that city you're in that small town like especially with Fargo and Lebowski especially Fargo more than any other movie of theirs and No Country for Old Men they did it really well too it isn't Lebowski too but not too much but casting locals makes you feel like the, these people live there so it makes you feel like you are there and it's super beneficial to the Coen brothers for adding that authenticity because they like to set their movies in situation in, in environments that are atypical for usual Hollywood block uh, films, you know they're not like Lebowski's in L.A., but it doesn't feel like like an L.A. movie, you know what I mean? And Fargo, obviously in Minnesota, it's you've never seen a movie set in that world, and you know having this crazy, ridiculous, complex murder mystery failed kidnapping plot set in the middle of Minnesota. It's just so fun. In North Dakota. Yeah. And before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We'll get awesome perks like our podcast schedule, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show once a month, as well as access to our weekly bonus episodes, which post every single Wednesday. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or want to improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 
audio, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all of our secrets from behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go on our website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Dot com. You can find it there. Use coupon code PODCAST10 to get 10% off right now. Follow, subscribe, wherever you're listening. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to hit that notification bell. And thank you so much for tuning in, in around the world. And so casting, I think, is one of the greatest strengths for the Coen brothers as filmmakers. And they're, they kind of remind me of Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, directors like that, where they're excellent at casting their actors for characters. And they also work with actors for multiple projects at a time or over and over again. Yeah, John Goodman's worked with them a bunch of times. And Francis McDormand's been in seven of the Coen Brothers films. Wow, that's, well, a, that's a lot. Technically, yeah. Joel, because he's only doing he's the only one doing Macbeth. So yeah. that's the seventh one she's been a part of. And even if Joel is, even though Joel is the solely credited director in the first few of their movies, they technically did direct their first few movies together. True, but so that's an interesting topic to start off, I think. So when Joel and Ethan Coen make their films together, um, they actually also edit everything as well. They use the pseudonym Roderick Janes so as not to highlight their names too much, too many times in their films. But as the, even though they work as a team, like you just said, their standard credit sequence is for Joel to be their director, and then Ethan takes on a producer credit, and they both usually share their writing credit for all their films. But in their that's for the first half of their films. Now they both get shared directing credit. And what happens is the Academy doesn't – the Directors Guild – wouldn't allow them both to get credited as director for their first few films because they have a bunch of weird rules and one of the weird rules is in order is in order to be credited as a duo you have to have a long-standing uh history of working together as a collaboration this is why hans zimmer and james newton howard weren't allowed to be nominated for the dark knight score they made because they had never they didn't have a long-standing filmography together they just did batman begins so that's why they weren't allowed to get nominated like not allowed and so Joel's credited in the first, I think, four or five movies, maybe even more. But then the last, like, 20 years, it's been directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Mm -hmm. And so also Trisha Cook serves as a co-editor on several of their films, not all of them. She's actually married to Ethan Cohen. And then we all know that Frances McDormand is married to Joel Cohen. So they, they see, tend to keep fall in, in love family. with keeping the family, fall in, people, fall in love with people you work with. Just like Chris Nolan and Zack Snyder. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, Zack Snyder's wife, Deborah, uh, Snyder. Deborah Snyder, produces all of his films. Yeah. And then Emma same Thomas with, is same. Christopher Nolan's wife. Yeah, but I love the Coen brothers in their films because they're not complicated they just want to tell you an interesting story with all their films. And I, I love like the concept of Fargo being like the, the irony of it being not real events, but they say it's based on real events. It's like a bunch of fake, a bunch of real crimes that they just pulled up from the world that they heard about and like put into a story about kidnapping and ransom and stuff like that. So it's not, even though they open it with like, this is a completely real story. That's a, that's a joke. Yeah, yeah. They did that as a joke and it's great because it's not just, this is based on real events. It's like out of respect for those who lost their lives. We're not going to use anyone's real names. It's so funny. I actually have uh, a little info on that. So according to Robert Taylor at Collider, the Coens did cherry pick a few details from real life included in the movie the wood chipper bit was inspired by a real life murder that occurred in connecticut about a decade before fargo was released a man named richard crafts was arrested and found guilty of killing his wife and using a wood chipper to dispose of her body oh so we all remember the scene in what are you fargo. gonna do with the cleanup <laughs> <laughs> and joel cohen told huffington post that macy's character was loosely inspired by a real general motors employee so william h macy's character jerry who attempted to who attempted to defraud the company by gumming up the serial numbers for some of their automobiles a scam similar to the one in the film hence Jerry is involved with with before he moves into the kidnapping so it's like uh 
a really dumb plan. Yeah, because so, the, the paper trail is going to lead back to him. Yeah, so that's the thing with Jerry. I love that character so much. But so Fargo was released in 1996. This has a 94% score on Rotten Tomatoes, 92 audience score, top-rated movie on IMDb at number 176. It has seven Oscar nominations, including two wins. This is what Frances McDormand won her first Oscar for. First you know, of three. Yeah, and then also it won screenplay, best screenplay. And then The Big Lebowski came out in 1999, has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 83% critic score. Wow. 83? And then 93% audience score, top-rated movie at number 208. And just to refresh everybody's memory, and that's on IMDb, Fargo follows a Minnesota car salesman, Jerry Lundegaard, and his, his inept crime falls apart due to his henchmen bungling and the persi- persistent police work of pregnant Sheriff Marge Gunderson after he creates a plot to kidnap his wife in order to get the ransom from him for himself. And then, and then Bill Gabowski... Quick little synopsis. The ultimate L.A. slacker, Jeff the Dude Lebowski, mistaken for a millionaire of the same name, seeks restitution for a rug ruined by debt collectors, enlisting his bowling buddies for help while trying to find the millionaire's missing wife. And I love both these films, and I think they go so well together as like a double feature. Yeah. Because even though they have similar plots, kind of, they're both about kidnapping and ransom, even though maybe one of the movies they're They're kidnapping. They're both about fake kidnappings. The kidnapping's not real. And they're they're both about greed. And it's this trope, this cliche story that we've seen on TV a hundred times. We've seen it in a hundred movies about a kidnapping, a ransom plot. We have cops, we have criminals. But the Coens bought the stories, even though they're kidnapping movies, they're both so incredibly unique and fun and interesting. Yeah, and they also have, they repeat scenes like in No Country for Old Man, Blood Simple, a few other of their, few other of their films. Like, for example, in Fargo, when he's trying to drag the dead body off the freeway before anyone shows up. Same thing happens in Blood Simple, remember? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's the black case of money. They actually use the exact same case that's in Fargo. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Go. That black case is the identical one that, to the one they use in No Country for Old Men, but that carries the money that Luen Ellen finds oh, in the tracker right. in it. Exactly the same exact case. They did that as a reference. That's so cool. An Easter egg to Fargo. Also, like, uh, a sad, uh, Peter Stormare plays the sadistic killer who just ends up killing everyone, just like Anton Sugar, uh, lead characters in over their head, and then obviously a kidnapping plot. So the the Coen brothers 
they stick to similar kinds of storytelling devices, but like you said, they they approach them in unique ways every time. Whereas No Country for Old Men is just a straight dark thriller. It has a little few moments of levity, but otherwise it's a very grim movie. Whereas Lebowski, it's hysterical and laugh out loud funny at times. Yeah. So their approach is changing, even though the devices are pretty similar. Yeah, and the Coen brothers, what's so great about them, they've seemed to they've achieved a status as filmmakers that it's pretty rare to get where your your directing name, the Coen brothers, that supersedes any of their casts. Especially even if you look at like um, Hail Caesar, that cast is absurd. Yeah. Burn after reading, absurd cast. But no one goes to see that movie because of these amazing actors, and they go to see it because it's a Coen Brothers movie, which is insane. I love, I love that. It's like Nolan, Tarantino, a lot of these directors, and Fargo and Big Lebowski, where the to the tones are pretty different, although they have their own kind of world aesthetic that they they build. You know, they build that with these super interesting characters that we'd never seen before. The realism, like you said, with having locals who are in the in the side character roles, like in Fargo. I think the two sex workers are like the yeah. best example of like these two women are definitely from either Minnesota or North Dakota. Like that accent sounds natural for sure. Frances McDormand actually based her accent off of one of those women. And she she spoke with that woman for days, recorded her, and researched and really um, dug into her accent and basically uh, imitated her for the character of March. Yeah, and she kills like the Midwest nicety. She is yeah, so that, good in that movie. That smiling, that always being super nice, even when she's in an unpleasant in situation, she still puts on a smile. That's kind of just like um, more of a defense mechanism than anything. Yeah, but the Coens, I think they're on that level of similar to Kubrick, where they create their own tone in in world. You know, it's pretty rare to do that for a filmmaker, and I think that they pull it off in every one of their movies because when you put on a Coen Brothers movie, it just feels like a Coen Brothers movie immediately, especially a movie like Fargo, where like you're inside like these bars and everything, and they, they make it just feel like such a real world, but also these wildly interesting, unique characters really just bring it to life even more. I would say that they're they're the best at the genre of dark comedy. I can't think of another set of filmmakers or a filmmaker that is better at that darkly comedic tone that they managed to capture. And I think it's a combination of how well crafted the movies are, how funny they can be, how how ridiculous the characters are. And the Coens oftentimes put their characters in realistically dangerous situations in in really dramatic situations. So it, that is super that kind of balances out the comedy and the humor where one scene you're cracking up and the next scene you you feel like someone's going to die. And I don't think any other directors or writers really pull that off the way that the Coen brothers do. Their movies have so much personality. Yeah. And it's because of the characters they create. Like, I love Lebowski because I think it needs a few viewings for people to really understand what they're doing. And I think it takes a couple to realize that the entire film really is a parody, in a way, of these tropes in Hollywood, of these kidnapping movies, these stories. Whereas Fargo isn't so much like that. Fargo has like a little more of a serious tone, despite the characters. But Lebowski is so much of a parody, and the more you watch it, the more times you watch it, you see more and more things that allude to that, obviously. And I think the my favorite example of it being a parody, obviously the character of the dude who's like, in this situation, he's like the laziest person in Los Angeles, in the world, maybe that's what the God <laughs> character, the stranger character, talks about. 
and he's like involved in this crazy plot of a kidnapping and ransom. And it's like, there's no way watching this, like, there's no way this guy's going to succeed at whatever he does, but you still root for him the whole time. So he's the exact opposite of what you expect from a hero of a film. Well, that's the same thing with Fargo, too, with Marge's character. You don't expect this very sweet, kind, loving uh, woman, pregnant woman, to be investigating these 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 grisly murders. You know, we're t we're used to like these strong, tough cops and cool detectives investigating these wearing sunglasses with like a dark past. Exactly. Yeah, they're alcoholics and they they they're never clean shaven. And so I think that juxtaposing this sweet, kind lady in the situations is, is the same thing as putting the dude in this other situation where these two characters who you would never expect to be in these stories are leading the stories. Yeah, Marge is a great example to talk about first because this is, the, again, the, the role that Frances won her first Oscar for. Marge doesn't get introduced into Fargo for about, what, like 30, 30 plus minutes of the film? Yeah. But once she arrives, she steals the entire movie from that point on. She nails that Minnesota Midwest nice. The accent, it's so good. But she brings so much warmth and relatable elements to Marge to make her feel like this real person, this real character. And I love that the Coen brothers make her seven months pregnant, or like I think it's her. She's obviously yeah, in the third trimester. Yeah. And so it's great that you're talking about why why make Marge so incredibly sweet and so nice and at such a late stage pregnancy. And I think it's because first of all, it's unique and interesting. We don't see stuff like that, even though it's part of real life. Pregnant women work all the time, but we never see that in movies. You know, sometimes it or it won't be too much of a pregnancy, but it'll be like a little bump and people are working in a film. But to have a, a pregnant woman be the sheriff of a town, it's, we've never really seen that before. And so I think they also did it to did this to March so that the characters in the film and the audience, you know, when you watch this movie, you underestimate Marge first impression, just like you underestimate Dude because of his laziness and laissez-faire attitude. But then we immediately see Marge, how sharp she is when she's at that crime scene for the first time. She's analyzing it with ease, and she's still seven months pregnant. And the pregnancy, you you would think it'd be like a, a like a, a weight on her shoulders, you know what I mean? Even though it literally is a weight on her, on her <laughs> torso, but it doesn't slow her down at all. And she's she's sharp, and she solves the crime literally on her own, arrests gear gear and everything by herself. I'm gonna have to uh, disagree on your police work there. <laughs> <laughs> she's so funny and sweet. Yeah, I, I love it. And um, oh, I was gonna say something. It's okay. I keep going. Marge, she's just that refreshing counter to all the cliche cops we see in movies and TVs, whether it be a female or male officer, detective, sheriff. They all seem to be cut from the same cloth, just copied from characters of the past. Marge is the exact opposite of what we'd expect from a sheriff. That's what makes it more realistic. That's what makes the character so much more interesting. So, in terms of how she's introduced, I really like it when filmmakers, they wait until the character needs to be introduced to introduce them. I think so many other filmmakers and writers, they would have had, you would have seen Marge before that, before the investigation of that homicide in the, yeah. in the on the freeway. And you would have maybe seen like a day in the life or her at the office or her, her and Norm. Because it starts as like yeah. Jerry's movie. Exactly. And I think it works better this way. You can say the same thing as like, I mean, Chris Nolan will do it sometimes where it, it's cool to, you don't have to show the character until they need to be seen by the audience. And she's irrelevant to the story until the killing. So there's no need to show her and Norm until that moment. Great so point. I think it's great when writers are like, okay, we have this lead of the movie, famous actor, but they're not necessary until this moment happens 30 minutes in. 
And so we're going to wait to show them until that moment happens. And I think that is a really smart way of approaching the character. Yeah, and then so Marge is so great, but it opens up really as Jerry's like first act of the film because I love the I love Fargo. Within four minutes, we know kind of the plot of the movie. Jerry yeah. Lundegaard is paying these two guys to kidnap his wife so that he can collect a ransom. So Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, I think it's his best role. Super funny. Really great character. Possibly the worst person in the film, even compared to Greer, who's a murderer. Because he's a constant scam artist. He's not a very good one either. He's a complete idiot. He's a liar. And he just tries to swindle every person in every situation. So he's even he even tries to swindle the robbers, the, the kidnappers himself. He tries to swindle Carl and Greer because they think the ransom's just going to be for 80000 But yeah. really, he's asking for a million. So he wants to keep all the money for himself. And, and, and even his clients, like the guy who's buying the car with the with the coat. What, what does he call that coat? Oh, the uh, some of the tea. Yeah, the the true coat or something. True coat. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I didn't. I never asked for it. We said nineteen five. We agreed on nineteen five. You're a liar. You're a liar. That's what you are. Give <laughs> and, uh, me my checkbook. Let's get this over with. Ethan Cohen said that he actually wrote that verbatim from a real scene he had with a car salesman who did the same thing to him. Wait, so a real life situation? Yeah, he okay. said he said it was verbatim what happened with him and his wife when they bought a car. Yeah. So Jerry's just a horrible, horrible person. He just wants money at all costs. But greed is a main theme in both of these films. So for greed. In Fargo, um, the character, so Carl, played by Steve Buscemi, will do anything to get more cash in his life, tries to take advantage of Jerry earlier on in the film. Just not a very good person. Gear is virtually a mute who never talks, but he seems to be floating through life with no path besides the next job or hit or whatever it is. Jerry is so desperate for cash that he scams that loan company, (laughs) then hires men to kidnap his wife to receive the ransom for himself while also taking advantage of his father-in-law and trying to take the million dollars from him, scamming the kidnappers into thinking the ransom's only $80,000. He's also asking his his stepfather to invest $750,000 into a parking lot that he wants to buy where he gets all the money and profit and he'll just give them their money back yeah. with interest. And then Wade's like, wait, you, what, you want us to just give you all the money so you make all the profits? <laughs> He's a terrible criminal. So we're not a bank. And William H. Macy is so good in this role because he also performs that Minnesota nice and he's always just on the edge of panic, and he has this tone of voice, this like high pitched, fake nice tone that he's always putting off on people, yeah. even when like you can tell how visibly upset he is and how much how close he is to like losing his shit constantly. William H Macy, I think this is his best role. I think he's really great in Magnolia too, and obviously his TV show, what's it called? Shameless. Shameless. But I think that his performance in Fargo has got to be the best of his career. He's really fantastic. He's really good in Boogie Nights too. Yeah. And then Wade is even very greedy where he doesn't even want to pay the full million to get his daughter back safely. He tries to bring it to half I'm a million. I'm going to bring them half a million half dollars. A million. Have a mill. <laughs> so, like, everyone's so greedy in this film, except, of course, for our hero, Marge. She's like the, and her husband who paints the ducks. What, and what's, yeah, Norm. <laughs> I, I want to talk about ah, Norm. Marge and Norm together. It's so, so cute. cute. Yeah. Like, just, I love the scene when they're at that big dining hall and then the cones just, because the cones are so good with inserting you into a world. It's not like a fantastical world, but they, they treat it that way. It's not like they're not like walking into Narnia. They're walking into a banquet hall yeah. in Minnesota. <laughs> buffet. Yeah, the buffet. We're watching this. I'm like, we got to hit up a buffet soon. <laughs> Love buffets. Because first they do close-ups of all the food. So you, you feel like this is this feels so real. You know what I mean? It feels like you're there with them. And everything's so accurate, I'm sure, and authentic to what it's like over there. And just see, they do this great wide shot, and they hold it for like 30 seconds of Marge and Norm just walking looking for a table. To their tables. The <laughs> camera doesn't move. It's just static. And the Coens, what they're doing is they're inserting you into this world. And stuff like that, the locals, again, the realistic locations, 
I'm sure that's a real banquet hall in whatever town they filmed that in. It makes you really feel like you're in um, Brainerd. They do a great job in, in the opening of Fargo at that bar where Jerry meets Colin Greer. So yeah. I think that's another great example of inserting you in this real-looking environment. It just feels like—it's just like being in the bowling alleys in Big Lebowski. Yeah. It feels so authentic and real. But I want to stay on Jerry for a little bit more. So Jerry Lundegaard, why does he need all this money? And so there are two reasons— Obviously, the first one is because in December in the year 1986, the movie takes place in 1987, Jerry scammed GMAC by receiving a $320,000 loan, probably just for himself or to pay off debts, for several non-existent vehicles by submitting order forms with unreadable VINs. And the VIN is that vehicle identification number on the front of your windshield. And so that's what he's been trying to... That guy who keeps calling him on the phone because he needs the real VIN numbers. He's like, oh, yeah. And he's doing the very thick pencil to make it seem... To make it more unlegible the next time he sends it. And then he also needs the money... Wants the money from his father-in-law and from the other businessman. I can't remember his, his name. His partner, yeah. Um, to buy that parking lot... And you could say that he wants that just to become like his own business, successful yeah. man. You know, he doesn't want to be a car salesman anymore. He kind of wants to be seen as an equal to his father-in-law, be a success on his own. He's so desperate to just become like a successful businessman that he'll risk getting his wife killed just for that. Just for that. If you're watching on YouTube or on social media, you may have noticed that Anthony and I have some brand new laptops on our desks. These are courtesy of LG, the 17-inch LG Gram Ultra Lightweight Laptops. The cool thing about them is they're 16 by 10 aspect ratio, which means more vertical space, which is great for editing, great for note-taking. But most importantly, so amazing for watching movies and TV shows on these incredible displays, which I'm telling you, I binge succession in like three weeks. I can't wait to watch the next episode on it tonight after we finish filming. I've been dying. It's Sunday a few days before this episode posts, and I need to watch it. I can't wait. I'm going to watch it on my LG Gram in my bedroom under my blankets because it's comfy weather now. So we'll put links in our YouTube video bio for the 16-inch and 17-inch models of the LG Gram. Thank you so much, LG, for sponsoring the show and for these amazing laptops. And it's winter now. It's getting a little chilly. So don't you know you're going to have to keep up with all that grooming, even though nobody's going to see your body in the wintertime. So I recommend getting the lawnmower 4.0 groomer from Manscaped. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Even though there's Cyber Monday and Thursday, Black I mean Black Friday deal is over, you can still get 20% off and free shipping from the entire site using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. They just launched their two-in-one shampoo conditioner, their body wash, which I've been using religiously in the shower. Obviously, I shower every day. <laughs> I hope so. But also, check out their 4.0 groomer. Check out their boxer briefs. They're super comfortable. T-shirts are very comfortable and soft. Their weed whackers, great. Their body wipes, everything. They have foot deodorant. You name it, they got it. They're expanding the line even more in January, so we can't wait to share those products with you guys. But we get to keep them hush-hush for now. So go to manscaped.com. It's holiday season. All you men, if you need some gifts for yourself, ladies, men, if there's a man in your life, whether it be boyfriend, spouse, Fiance, brother, cousin, dad, you got to get them. Well, maybe not your dad. If you got to get them something for the holidays. <laughs> yeah, get them. Get them something from manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. What well, I don't know. If you gave your dad like groom, a grooming, if you're if you're a woman and you give your dad a grooming kit, that's a little weird. But a guy, it's, I think it's okay. I think it's totally fine. I, everyone get your dad a Manscaped groomer. <laughs> everybody. Everybody do it. do it right now. <laughs> get it if it pops. <laughs> And his father-in-law, Wade, treats him like he's not even part of the family. Like, he's worried about the money. He's like, oh, they'll never have to worry. But he never, he doesn't include him in it. It reminds me of um, uh, the father in Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Of Anne Hathaway's uh, father. Mm -hmm. That same thing, treating him like he's not even really part of the family. Yeah, it's a Jake Gyllenhaal's character. Yeah, exactly. 
And I I really love the accents, but the Carl Steve Buscemi's character, he really shows you how ridiculous the accents are because he generally does most of the dialogue in a normal American accent compared to other characters. Like you know, Greer says a couple of words here and there, and Wade doesn't have the thickest accent, but Carl's complete lack of an accent really brings out the other accents so much. Yeah, because because the Coen Brothers are cross cutting the Carl scenes with the March scenes and with the um, Jerry scenes. And that really brings out how zany this accent is, how nice these people are, the the Minnesota nice. I really think it's exceptional what William H. Macy and Francis McDormand did. Yeah, because Carl clearly seems like he's from like a city somewhere, like yeah. on the East Coast probably. And then uh, Greer seems like he's European. Of Swedish. Swedish. So he's Swedish. Yeah. So And then he's German. He's a nihilist. He's a German Nihil- nihilist in Lebowski. <laughs> no, they just think he's German because they're idiots. <laughs> they call him German too. Yeah, because they're idiots. Yeah, but they speak German. No, they speak they speak Swedish. They speak Swedish? Yeah, they're Swedish. Oh, I was wrong. Yeah, never mind. It's well, they're okay. nihilists. Yeah, way. They, they call them Nazis because they because he's an idiot. Don't worry, Donnie. These people, these men are cowards. <laughs> Shut the f up, Donnie. <laughs> we're not. We're just trying not to swear in this one. We'll, we'll do. It. We're doing a pretty good job yeah, so far. We're doing great. But, <laughs> but I read that. Um, so Norman Norman Marsh before they got married, and now this is something John Carroll Lynch plays Norm. He's a great underrated actor. Like he used the Zodiac in that the suspected Zodiac in yeah. Zodiac. You've seen him in a ton of roles and very very versatile actor. So. The Coens weren't sure what to do for a backstory. They weren't sure if they were going to even include it. So they actually asked Francis McDormand and John Carroll Lynch to come up with the backstory of why, how did they get here in their marriage. And so what they came up with was that Norm and Marge used to both be on the police force. And then once Nor- Marge got pregnant, they decided one of us should be a stay-at-home parent while the other one stays a cop. And they decided that since Marge was a much better cop, Norm should stay home. And so he he quit his job as a police officer, and then he started painting ducks. I loved how they introduced the ducks. It's just yeah. like a slow uh, <laughs> pan through the garage of all. Oh no, it's their bedroom, their bedroom of all the yeah. duck paintings and and the wooden duck, the mallards. Yeah. And, and then they're sleeping right next to the he's, bed. He's trying to get the stamp. Yeah, he gets the three cent stamp, <laughs> not the twenty seven cent, twenty nine cent. What, what's funny about them is every time you see them, they're either lying in bed or eating. That's true. Yeah. yeah. One of the, one of those two things at all times. They're so cute together. Yeah, like he goes, he brings her lunch at work, and he's like, she, "Honey, you got Arby's on me." <laughs> I'm Norm, you got Arby's on me. <laughs> well, since we're talking about Norman Marge, we should probably talk about Mike Yanagita and that scene that she has when she goes down to Minnesota, the Twin Cities, to interrogate uh, the criminal who hooked up Carl and Jerry, the mechanic, and. I think a lot of people might watch the scene and be like, what is the point of this scene at all? And why is this happening? Because when you watch it, it seems to not be integral to the plot. But I think there that is an important scene because on the surface, it looks like it has nothing to do with the plot. But you can say that it's one of the reasons Mike calling her is one of the reasons that entices her to go to Minnesota to check out the lead in person rather than doing it yeah. on the phone. Because, you know, she's seven months pregnant. Maybe she doesn't want to do that and all that traveling but because Mike called her up. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! So how are you? How are you? Yeah, it's been forever. How you doing? Oh, uh, pretty good. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> he does a great accent as well in this, and so I think that's one of the re- that's one of the important reasons of the scene to entice her down there to get further in her leads and in her investigation, then to start talking to Jerry, interrogating him, and then I think a lot of people are watching it. Is she planning on having an affair with Mike? I don't think so at all because. You know, she's not immune to curiosity, even though she seems to be, like, the most innocent person alive. Marge is just a very good person. 
But it definitely doesn't seem like that's what she's interested in because as soon as Mike goes on the other side of the table, she's like, no, get away. Go back on the other side of the table. Even though, you know, she did get dressed up. She didn't tell Norm about this meeting or date or whatever you want to call it. She kept it secret and never brings it up to him later on. I just think that she was just curious to see an old friend, see how they were doing. And I think it's just being polite and nice, too. Oh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Darn tootin'. Darn. <laughs> I think that Marge was just being a, a, a friendly person. And I read that the Coen brothers put that scene in because they wanted a scene of character development for Marge that didn't have to do with the case. Yeah, that's the part or two with of Norm. It. Yeah, so you can go on it. And so with that scene, the way she reacts to that very uncomfortable moment, it sh they showed she's a very strong person. And she's very uh, – she knows what she wants and she knows what she doesn't want. And she stands up for herself. Immediately. Like yeah. if she's in a situation yeah. that she doesn't want to be in, she ends it. So I think that scene is actually vital to understanding how she acts for the rest of the film, especially at the end when she finds the, the car driving around the lake and then she encounters Greer – she man, she without a, doesn't hesitate arrests the, shoots the guy and then arrests him. It shows, and I think that scene in the restaurant shows that she's it's like building up to like showing she's capable of something like that. Yeah, I think it's more. I think that yeah, that has something to do with the two, but I think it's more about her conversations with Jerry. So the first time she goes, she gets to Minnesota, she talks to Jerry, and Jerry's at this point like boiling inside. He's everything's going wrong, <laughs> and his wife's kidnapped, and he's trying to keep it secret, and he he. He uh, set the whole thing up, and the car is missing, and he's trying to lie about it. And um, he's he does the Minnesota nice, and she falls for it. You could say maybe maybe being so nice and such a sweet person, and always seeing the best in people, you could say could be a character flaw of Marge's. Because I think when she has that that little that date with Mike, you could say if if it's a date or not, um, the way that he acts about being so polite and nice, but then she, be below the surface, his real intentions were not pure. They were pretty messed up to just go on the other side of the table and put his arm around her like that. It's not a good situation that she wanted to be in at all. So I think that maybe that scene or that going out with Mike made her realize, you know, just because someone's being nice doesn't mean they're they're not hiding something. And then the second time she talks to Jerry, he's even more of a mech, a re, a, more of a wreck in a mess, and then he drives away. Yeah. <laughs> and but then, but she also starts to interrogate him in that situation. The first time she does like the very sweet interrogations, which are always so fun for her to, to watch her do. It's more uh, the first one. It seems like she's it's just some simple information she yeah. needs. She, there's no reason to suspect Jerry because she doesn't know about any kind of kidnapping. All she's investigating is the homicides yeah. and trying to figure out where this stolen car came from and why the mechanic got the phone call. So she has no reason to suspect Jerry at that time, but then he becomes much more suspicious by the second conversation. But maybe she doesn't have the attitude going into the second meeting that she has if she doesn't meet with Mike the night before. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, fuck these men. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the story. <laughs> Just bleep it out, bro. Effing men. <laughs> <laughs> And then I want to talk about uh, Steve Buscemi. I think he's really fantastic in this movie. It's one of my favorite Buscemi roles. I think it might, it's possible it could even be better than his Reservoir Dogs one as Mr. Pink. He has, I think he has more dialogue to, and more to do in this Believe one. Believe it or not, sure. yeah, he might in this film. He really carries a lot of the scenes he's in because Peter Stormare is great, but he obviously doesn't have any dialogue really. But Carl is such a funny character. He, he is like constantly like just trying to gain control of the situation, but he himself is like kind of a bumbling fool. I, I just really think that Buscemi knocked the comedy out of the park. He's really funny in this. Yeah, him and him and Gear, it's just a funny back and forth because 
that's what I love about the Corn Brothers. They'll take these two hitmen, these two like kidnapping guys, criminals, and show their ridiculous journey to and from the crimes and during the crimes rather than just being the tough guy criminals like, oh, we're going to do this and all that. But we see all the funny moments that are probably happening with real criminals in real yeah. life and real car rides. All these when you're driving for 16 hours, obviously one of them is going to start losing their mind while talking and everything. So it's just so fun to see them in their back and forth. It also shows you. How much easier it is to write a story if it's set before you had cell before cell phones yeah. were a thing, because if if Jerry had a cell phone, he could have just called up Carl and be like, "It's off, don't don't kidnap her." <laughs> Problem solved. Nothing would have happened. Oh yeah, so so let's talk about that. So Jerry obviously creates this kidnapping plot, and before it's gonna go down, Wade tells him that him and his partner are interested in the deal, and it's very juicy. So Jerry thinks it he's looks gonna good. Get a, he, Num- numbers look good. So he thinks he's gonna get a he's, he thinks he's gonna get seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's a then, sweet deal. But then he he finds out it's just a finder's fee <laughs> yeah. for, and then he eventually loses his finder's fee because they're just gonna take advantage of the deal that he found, and then obviously he can't tell Carl and and Gear to not kidnap his wife, which they do, and then everything just goes wrong. Dude, not having cell phones makes you so much more free to do whatever you want with a plot. That's true, yeah. So many problems can be solved or or prevented with a cell phone call or with a text. And so that's why, like, it, I'm sure, like, filmmakers like PTA T- Tarantino, they always write period pieces for that very reason. I guarantee you. Yeah, you're probably you right. You have so much more freedom and less restrictions without having modern technology. Because when you watch a modern film and people aren't on their phones all the time, you're like, where are all the phones? Yeah, why, is it, why aren't all these 14-year-olds on their phones right now? <laughs> this crazy. doesn't make any like, sense. I was thinking that when we watched Ghostbusters Afterlife, yeah. there's like six or seven teenagers in the back of a pickup truck or an El Camino. No one was taking no a selfie. A, no one had their phone on. I'm like, that's not realistic. Yeah, there would be 16 <laughs> selfie videos being filmed. Love the movie, but everyone would be Instagramming a story right there. <laughs> <laughs> and then Peter Stormare, he's such an underrated actor he's so great in in these coen brothers movies he's he played my favorite version of satan in Constantine. yes and he's also in john wick 2 for a little bit i think he's an awesome actor i think for being a foreign actor he's made a pretty successful career in hollywood i think he's really funny in this movie he has a ton of credits yeah he reminds me of anton chigurh in this but like a, a more funny version um, and then obviously he's so ridiculous in uh, Big Lebowski, but I love. I think that this character reminds me a lot of Anton, someone yeah, who's someone who that. has like a job, but like they just kill just to kill, in a way. But whereas, yeah. An- but Anton falsely justifies his yeah. actions, yeah. whereas Gear just kind of is an impulsive person, yeah. like where he kills Carl at the end because he just can't stand his talking yeah. anymore. He's like, I'm done. Even Same though thing- he walks out the door, he gets even more cash from Carl. He kills the hell of him with an axe, just yeah. just cause. Same thing with Miss Lundergaard. Yeah, she said she was scree- she was shrieking. <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> she was shrieking. Not that it's funny. It's just, it's just funny. It's supposed to be funny. Yeah, it's okay to laugh. I at don't want to get a one star review. We're not. It's everyone right. laughs at it. Sorry, I'm just trying <laughs> to always to be, be so careful. <laughs> I'm gonna get canceled. <laughs> We're saying we laughed at a movie. You're going to get axed. <laughs> Someone's going to show up at our doorstep and murder us <laughs> for real. Well, anyways. <laughs> There are two collaborators of the Coens that have always been with them, mostly. Mostly. Um, uh, Carter Burwell, the composer, who's done nearly every one of their films, excellent composer. And he always brings so much to their films. And then, obviously, Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins didn't didn't film the first few of their films, but Fargo was one of the early ones that he did film. And he really shows – he has so much talent, and there's some really terrific imagery that – sets this movie apart from other dark comedies. He's, 
This movie is perfectly shot. Yes, the um, cinematography is beautiful. I think one of my favorite shots in film history in general is the parking, parking lot. lot. That's yeah. it's a very famous shot, and I there's very few DPs uh, that would ever come up with shots like that. You know, so many other filmmakers would would film that in a very simple way, but he's like, no, let's throw the camera way back there and just get the entire parking lot. And I love the sense of how they captured snow. We're from Boston, so we know what snow is like, and oftentimes snow in movies look super fake always n never seems realistic and snow hardens you know and it's hard to walk through it's not just powder that you can just like kick around mm -hmm. you know once it once it freezes it's just solid and so i think they did a great job of capturing snow um that they, crunch under the boots yeah like when, and then when carl falls into the snow when his face is blown open like stuff like that it's realistic and it makes it feel feel, feel even more authentic because it you, feels like Every time I see a movie, snow in a movie, I'm like, that looks so fake. It's not real. Yeah, but also, you notice that it never actually is snowing in Fargo, even yeah. though it's never, which is common. I mean, it'll snow in the wintertime if you're in a cold environment, in a cold climate, in region of the country or in the world. It'll just, this, and it doesn't melt because it's so cold. So yeah. it'll just be there for months, yeah. you know, and then it'll get accumulated. It just builds on, on top of each other. More and more yeah. snow. Sometimes it melts on a sunny day, even though it's cold, but still, there's always just going to be snow around, which in movies, they always make it seem like it, we have to see the snow falling yeah. in order for people to realize that there's snow. There's always snow in New England the entire wintertime. And also, they filmed this, it was unusually warm that year in the areas where they filmed in. Uh, they actually couldn't film it all in Minnesota and North Dakota. Minnesota? They, Minnesota. They had to go to other states because it was so warm there. And I think they really did a great job of capturing the freezing cold weather. When I watch this movie, I feel cold when I watch it. You know what I mean? I think they really captured it really well with the performances. You Seeing the breath, you know, with getting like the character stuck in the snow, it felt so real. It goes with the characters, too, yeah. and their, their mess-ups. Like, I think with... With Carl Gear and Jerry's wife when they're in that cabin in the cold, it, you really feel like you're cold watching it, especially the shot where um, the breath coming out of the the bag over her yeah. head. Yeah, 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 it's great. That's it's the great best shot, shot in the movie. It's, it's a really shot good the shot. And, um, you just you just feel like everything they're in over their heads and everything's going wrong and just wrong, and the cold is just making everything even worse for them. That's something that like Roger Deakins manages to always capture, like these little moments. Uh, and he'll be like, I'm just going to hold the camera on this for a minute, where no other filmmaker would really hold the camera on, you know, the breath coming out of the mask. But he's someone who's like, I'm going to keep that. We're going to hold on to it for like 10 seconds, and it's really beautiful. It shows that they actually really shot in a cold environment. Exactly. Like you can't really replicate. You can't do that digitally yeah. in, in an effective way. Even nowadays, even nowadays, it still doesn't feel real. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you, I've seen There are some movies where they fake, they fake it with CGI. It's okay, but yeah. it's not real. It's not the same. Yeah. The breaths always look the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel that for sure. Um, you want to move on to? You want to talk some more about Lebowski? Do you want to get into our intermission first? Oh yeah, let's do intermission. Yeah, I forgot. Let's do our, let's All right, let's dive into our intermission, everybody. Then we so, get to the dude, and then we talk about the dude because he abides. Let's start with our movie <laughs> quote competition. This one's for me. You don't listen, do you? I don't think you ever really hear me. You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Oh, I know this. I'll give everyone a second. Joker. Yes. Joker. Great, great, great one. Great movie. <clears throat> okay, I have a quote. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows, huh? No? Want to guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. Hmm. Say that again. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows, huh? Want to guess? No? 
Okay, they lose their noses. I don't know. Chinatown. Oh, man. J.J. Gitz. Yep. That's when he gets his nose cut. Yeah. That's a great special special effects shot, too. It's fantastic. Really it's, good practical it's, effects. It's so good. It seems like he really got his nose cut off. That, that makes me cringe every time I watch it. <laughs> All right. Guess this movie release year. Tron. The original? The original Tron. 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 Hmm. Tron. Oh, man. I'm going to go with... Ugh, it's the 80s. I'm going to go with 1982. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Straight guess. You were like like sulking into the microphone. I almost said it. I thought it was 81, but then I just for some reason too I think I twin telepathied you. Maybe. I think so. All right, your turn. Jack Nicholson's movie Five Easy Pieces, which he was nominated for an Oscar for. 1978. 70. It's wow, an oldie. That old. It's an oldie. Holy crap. Yeah. All it's right. pretty young in it. Movie pop quiz time. Let's go. How many Oscars has Frances McDormand won, and what are the films she has won for? Easy peasy. This is Child's Play. Fargo. She's won three. Fargo. Three billboards. And then Nomadland. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yep. Um, yeah, you got the second part right. The first part you got wrong. She has four Oscars. Wait, she has four Oscars? She has a producing Oscar oh. credit for Nomadland. Oh, my God. Trick question. Gotcha. <sighs> I knew I'd get you with that. Damn you're it. so cocky going into that. Oh, this is child's play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're a fucking idiot, Jim. <laughs> I never said that. Sorry. <laughs> I never said that. <laughs> how <laughs> you take that as me insulting you. <laughs> All right, your turn. <laughs> You're a fucking idiot, Jim. That was a good trick question. I got you, You man. worded it. I was just thinking straight up acting. I've been, yeah. I've been waiting to pull it out. I, I, I was Look like, at that smile told, on your face. I'm going to get you this You're time. so happy. I'm going to crack open a new LaCroix because I'm so happy. Let's hear that crack. Oh, yeah. Oh. How how happy would you be if we got Lacroix as a sponsor, dude? I'd be ecstatic. <laughs> this kid, I swear to God, <laughs> tell the story. All he drinks his Lacroix. No, tell the story. Okay. <laughs> the other day, we were going to the grocery store. This is when we got back from our flight yeah, from being in Boston. Going to the grocery store, I'm driving, and then all of a, all of a sudden, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> I turn over. <laughs> I look over. Jim's drinking a Lacroix. He, he brought it. He was, it was in my cup holder. <laughs> I was driving. You were driving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was like five minutes into the into oh the my ride. God. We're on the highway. He just hears. <laughs> I've seen the Lacroix in my car too. I, two weeks ago, I came, I went in my car. There's an empty Lacroix in the cup holder. Bro, I love Lacroix. I love him. He drinks it like it's a drug every day, man. It's it's, a, it's so good. When we we're away, you drank so many soda waters because he didn't have any. Every chance he got you. So, every time I looked at him during Thanksgiving, he had a soda water in his hand. So addicted to soda water. <laughs> So addicted to it. Oh man. Anyways. All right. Who's our hater of the week? Oh, I'm not. I gotta do my quiz. Oh, I'm sorry. Jeez, man. Sorry, man. <sighs> okay. What famous movie director starred in Chinatown? Hmm. It's toughy. Oh, I thought you. I thought you would get this. Yeah. Do you want a hint? Sure. He ended up becoming Jack Nicholson's stepfather. Who did Jack marry? Oh, you don't know who Jack married? I forget. I can't remember. Yeah, Yami. John Huston. 
Oh crap! Yeah, You're Angelica right. Houston is his daughter. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He married Angelica Houston. Yeah. They got divorced eventually, right? Yeah, but they were married for yeah. like thirty years for a while. Yeah, they had a, they have a couple of kids. Yeah, Angelica's great. Got yeah. her on a poster right here. Yeah, she's right there. Real ten bombs. Yeah, yeah. John I mean, Houston, John Houston. Um, he was a great director, and he was also a pretty successful actor. And he had a great career. And Daniel Day Lewis even and he based some of his um accent in There Will Be Blood off of John Houston. That's cool. Yeah. Jack actually wanted to be a director, but they they convinced someone convinced him to be an actor. Then they are becoming one of the best ever. Probably the best ever. All right, who's our hater of the week? Got any real ones? No, I have an unsubscriber. Got a couple unsubscribes. <clears throat> Love to hear them. I can't wait to tell you. Here we go. The anticipation. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep sipping my Lacroix. Okay. <clears throat> I posted a interstellar um, clip. And Hunter Melendez wrote, the nerve they must have to think they don't understand Interstellar's complexity enough to have a Q&A on it. Unsubscribe, <laughs> referring to our Patreon Q&A. So biggest supporter of this episode is Kadarius Cook, our friend on Instagram and TikTok. He made us these amazing shirts that have our logo, Raiders of Lost Podcast, embroidered beautifully on there. We'll show an image on the YouTube version right now. So Kadarius, thank you so much for these shirts. You can... Check out his apparel at nirvanascreation.com. Also, his Instagram and TikTok handles are Kadarius KD. He's an amazing guy, does really talented embroidery work. Thanks so much, pal. And so we also have a couple of five-star reviews. Ooh. Two of them I'll read off. So great commentary. This is from Say It Ain't Lewis. These guys are nice. great. Love their commentary and takes. Lots of fun. Thanks, Lewis. And then from Lil Manguzi, wow, unsubscribed. One of my absolute favorite podcasts, definitely the only film podcast I found that I genuinely listen to, all narrated by fun film geniuses. Whoa, I like that word. <laughs> Would love to see an episode talking about Stranger Things. Love you guys. Keep up the good work. We're actually going to do Stranger Things as soon as that that season. Well, maybe we'll do like a- Before season four. We'll do seasons one through three soon. Yeah. That'd be actually a lot of fun because we actually really like Stranger Things. It's a great show. On this day in film history, today is Thursday, December 2nd. In 1988, The Naked Gun was released. In 2013, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog premiered. In 2016, Jackie was released. And happy birthday to Lucy Liu. I have a real hater. I oh, found him. Oh, you found a real hater? Yeah. Let's go. Who okay, I posted this guy's a fucking D-bag. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I posted a clip of on Jurassic Park. So the two water, the water cups with the ripples in the water. The way they made that effect happen was naturally they um, fixed a guitar string, an acoustic guitar string underneath the dashboard of the car, right below the cups. And then they flicked the guitar string, and that created natural ripples in the water to make it look like it was a T-Rex um, stomping. stomping. And so really cool practical effects. So that was the, that's what the clip was about. And then Nice, com nice Combo 6 wrote, this podcast is just the Wikipedia article, dot, 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 dot. And I wrote, our podcast is actually 90 minutes of film analysis, and this is just our TikTok page. And then he re he replied, I've seen it. This was the highlight, dot, 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 dot. dot I, did, dot, I just dot, didn't dot. respond. Dot, I was dot, like, dot, what dot. a douchebag. Are you kidding me, man? You, I wouldn't even respond if I was you. Yeah, well. I don't yeah. respond to people who say, say stuff like that because yeah, who cares? It's like, dude, get a life. He's just living in his mom's basement, just eating Hot Pockets and, and licorice. And What are you even doing watching our videos, bro? Haters going to hate. Ainer's gonna ain't. He wants that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. All right, my stream recommendation for this episode is the Office Christmas episodes. <laughs> so obviously the Office is on Peacock. 
Um, four specifically that I choose as my favorites because I think there's seven or eight total. So these are your top four. Top four office Christmas episodes. Um, in no order. So we got Christmas Party, which is season two, episode 10. Um, that also has the Yankee Swap inside of it. Uh, Secret Santa, season six, episode 13. Really great one. And we also have Moroccan Christmas, season five, episode 11. And then Benihana Christmas, season three, episode 10 and 11. And that's a great one as well. Is that your favorite episode? Benihana Christmas? Yeah. No, no. Like probably dinner party. And oh, yeah, dinner party. There's, there's, there's a, like a, a handful of more that I put above Benihana Christmas. Benihana Christmas is great. But we're actually going to do an office episode pretty soon. And we, do, do you guys, do you all want an office episode? They definitely want it. Yeah, we're thinking Whether about it. Whether they want it or not, or know <laughs> that they have, want it, it's, gonna it's happening. It. And they're just going to get delivered. They're going to have to accept it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> they're going to have to deal with it. What's your deal stream? with it. <laughs> what's your streaming recommendation? <laughs> Sorry. I picked The Constant Gardener on Amazon Prime. It just uh, got put on the platform. It's a really great drama. Stars Ray Fiennes and Rachel Weiss. She won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in this movie. Really fantastic film. I highly recommend it. Now, before we move on to the dude, I got to tell you all about MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. The holidays are coming. There's no better present to get the film lover in your life than a movie poster of their favorite film. MoviePosters.com has... All sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, they can handle it. They have pretty much every film and TV show imaginable at their arsenal. Head on over to movieposters.com, use our promo code RAIDERS10, and get 10% off your order today. And our other amazing sponsor, Arc Studio Pro, is the most efficient, streamlined, and elegant screenwriting software on the market. They have teamed up with us to offer a very special discount, $30 off their membership. If you follow the link, arcstudiopro.com slash Raiders. Again, arcstudiopro.com slash Raiders. ArcStudio Pro is the best screenwriting software I have ever used. They have all sorts of really cool perks like this plot board, which allows you to easily organize your plot points with this basically like a digital flashcard drag and drop system. Super helpful with organizing. They also have all sorts of apps for your desktop or phone. Online collaboration with co-writers, super, super helpful outlining tools, revisionist management, and even links to feedback so people can give you feedback on your writing. Now, all you got to do is head on over to arcstudiopro.com slash Raiders to get $30 off and start writing today. All right, let's, we've been talking a lot about Fargo. Let's dive into some Big Lebowski. We'll bounce back and forth, obviously, because there's still some more stuff. I love about, bouncing back and uh, forth. There's some other yeah. stuff I want to talk about with Fargo, but, you know, let's talk about the People dude. want the dude. Let's yeah. talk about him. We've been saving him. So the dude played by Jeff Bridges, probably his best role. The dude's the man. He fits right in where he is. Uh, I love the character. He's just the laziest person alive. He writes checks for 69 cents at the grocery store to get cre cream or milk for his white Russians, which he drinks constantly. <laughs> I love that the scene opening. so much. He's just in the grocery store drinking the milk and smelling it <laughs> and then writing a check for 69 cents. And he's cents. got cream on his, yeah. on his mustache. <laughs> he's completely incompetent, but he, you can't help but root for the dude the entire film. He's this completely broke stoner, drinks these white, white Russians, smokes bulls. It's, it's kind of ridiculous and... He's like the ultimate underdog too. Where, like I said, he's this hero's journey that he's on is it's so ridiculous, it's daunting. But we love to just watch him like as he progresses from being the laziest stoner alive to like kind of like a little bit of a detective towards the end. 
Well, I wouldn't say that. Kind of. Well, I would say a little bit. The, the dude doesn't change at all. He's a static character. He doesn't change in any way. But he gets more like kind of intrigued or interested yeah, in, yeah. in the plot. Yeah, yeah. But but the thing with the dude is, I think that it's this is an, 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 the Cohen's interpretation of the idiot, which follows a character who is oblivious to like um, the world around him, who finds himself caught in these crazy circumstances and these plots of other characters. And he's kind of a fool, and um, and not he's just very s- slow. I think this is the Coen Brothers' interpretation of that character of someone who shouldn't be in these situations, but is. He doesn't really even drive the story forward, wa- wanting it to go forward, but just things happen to him, and the world around him changes, but Lebowski doesn't change. Uh, the dude just stays the same, man. Yeah, you could say it. You're right. At the end of the film, he's like basically the same person. Still a dude. Despite all the experiences he just had, despite, yeah. you know, Donnie dying and everything, everything that's happened to him, impregnating a woman probably, it's just, he's just the dude now still. Because that's what the dude's I, in, entire persona is, and that's how he lives his life of, you know, just, he's the dude. Dude. I'm the dude. No, no matter what happens. Duterino, yeah, your dudeness. <laughs> no matter what happens around him. No matter how the world changes, you know, he just is going to sit back and keep coasting regardless. No matter how crazy the story gets, he's still just going to, you know, sit back in his chair, relax and put his sunglasses on and drink a white Russian. Yeah. That's the whole idea of the character. I think critics are just so blind to how good this movie actually is. There's it's so, so funny. There's so much attention to detail to the acting, the writing. Every time I watch it, I always, I always find something new, I feel like. I feel, I bet critics... They didn't understand the character. They didn't understand the movie. Yeah, the, po- the whole point it's, of it's, the dude. It's like Burn After Reading. That's one of the Coen Brothers movies that it's kind of hard to get your first time. For some people, I love that movie. That movie's hysterical. I think it's very funny, yeah. very good, really great script. Osborne. But Cox. like versus Fargo, Fargo is like a clear cut. You know what the movie's about, but, but Big Lebowski, maybe not everyone gets it their first time. They don't get the humor, I think, at, at first. I think it's... For me, Lebowski gets better on repeat viewing. Yeah, I think also people are put off by like the stuff, like the dream sequences. Maybe they're not. They're like, "What mm. is the point of this whole thing? Why? Why are we doing this and everything?" I, I think they don't understand. I, I also think that maybe people just don't like the character of the dude. Yeah, maybe they don't like those kinds of people in real life, despite having no effect on their lives. And they're like, "Why do I have to watch a whole movie about this guy just drinking white Russians and, and chilling in a bathrobe?" But I love every second of it. This and I, I just the creation of the character. Uh, and Jeff Bridges, he will go down mostly remembered for this, because it's it perfectly he perfectly embodied the character. And uh, I read that when he met with the Coens, he's like, "Did you guys grow up with me? Because this is what I was like when I was in high school." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Did you guys know me?" And um, he even used a lot of his own clothes for the film. So a lot of the dude's clothes are Jeff Bridges' clothes that he brought for the movie. That's so funny. Like the bath, like one of the bathrobes, a lot of the t-shirts and shorts. I think the sandals too. Like yeah, those, yeah, those, those the sandals. Clear, the yeah. clear, like Jesus sandals. They're called jewels. Yeah. Um, they're they're pretty big sandals back then. They're a big fashion trend, and he was always wearing them on his own. And then he was like, "Hey, I, the dude should wear these sandals. That's mm. something the dude would wear." Yeah. But the whole movie is a parody. It's a parody on these same tropes, these same characters, kidnapping movies. And I think m- my favorite example. Of this movie being a parody is like about like halfway, three quarters through the film. He's having that drink at that guy's house. <laughs> and um, he's trying to like figure out what's going on with this with the kidnapping and everything. He's trying to find the money. 
He's in deep shit. He's in over his head. And the guy takes a call and writes on the notepad. And then he leaves the room. Then then the dude gets up real quick. He takes a pencil. And we're watching. He's like, oh, he's going he's gonna to scratch out what's on the pad. And we're going to see what the guy wrote. It's going to be amazing. And it's just a stick figure with a huge erection. And it's just like, <laughs> that's what the whole movie is. That's the whole movie. That's it. It's a giant parody joke. Yeah, and, and same thing with when they go to Larry's house. And then he, he destroys the car. <laughs> this is what happens when you F a stranger in the ass. This is what happens. Larry. You're going to want to look out the window, Larry. <laughs> Walter just messes that car up, and it's the neighbor's car. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, is Larry the same kid from Fargo, Jerry's son? I think it is. Maybe. I Maybe. think it could be, because this movie was only made two years after Actually, looks like him. After Fargo. I think it is the same kid. Kind of looks like him. It's, it's funny, because Larry doesn't even say a word. Yeah. It's so amazing. <laughs> but, like, the story gets so ridiculous and complex and complicated, I just really love like the interweave, like how wild the plot gets and all the zany characters. You got Julian Moore as Maud, and then you have uh, Peter Stormare again as Nihil- as the nihilist. Nihilist uh, one. Uh, was it Hungus? 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 Or yeah, I think it's Hungus. Carl Hungus. <laughs> yeah, Carl Hungus. <laughs> <Or> Victor Hungus. <laughs> no, it's Carl. Carl. And then you got Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brent, and then you know the Big Lebowski. He's funny in this, and just the cast of characters are so great. You know, Jesus, you know, John Turturro. And I think this is when the Coen brothers really understood, like, the power of wardrobe. Because there are famous wardrobes in this movie. You got John Turturro's character, the the pink, the, the purple jumpsuit as Jesus. And then Walter's, he's always got the vest and, the cargo shorts and combat boots. And the yellow sun- sunglasses. His sunglasses. And then the dude's always in a bathrobe or, or something very relaxed like that. And I think that... These are all like these are Chris. These are Halloween costumes. You know what I mean. And so I think the Coen Brothers, when you make a cult classic like this, and you have great wardrobe, that really resonates with people. Like people dress up as these characters for Halloween. And it's not like it's not a scary movie. It's not a fantastical movie, but it's a loved movie. Yeah. In both films, Fargo and Lebowski have these kidnapping plots. Obviously, in Fargo, there's actually a real kidnapping. There are murders. And Jerry's wife eventually gets murdered as well. So there's an actual real kidnapping set up by Jerry that goes completely wrong. And Jerry, obviously, at the end of the film, gets caught after hiding out for who knows how long. Whereas in Big, the Big Lebowski, Lebowski. Oh, gets, I'm sorry, I love Jerry's arrest scene. Oh, Jerry's like super a crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they pull him out of the way. He's like, no, no. <laughs> so then the kidnapping in in Lebowski is uh, the big, the the supposedly rich Lebowski hires the dude to be a courier because his trophy wife bunny has been kidnapped and he needs her to get her back with the million dollars in the briefcase. And they suspect that it's the two guys that broke into the dude's apartment earlier. And, and peed on his carpet yeah. because it really tied the room together. <laughs> but really they just wanted some some doofus, some throwaway guy to be the person in this position to do it. Isn't this guy supposed to be like a millionaire? And then they, <laughs> <laughs> we're not morons. <laughs> you're, you're not the only. No, they just say you're not the only moron here. <laughs> but the irony of it is, there was no kidnapping. The big Lebowski, the other, the rich one, isn't rich. It's really Maude and his and her mother's money. He has no part of the family expenses and finances. The kidnapping was fake so that he could get money. It's similar to Jerry. Yeah. Whereas the kidnapping was real. And the irony in Fargo is even though Carl hides all the cash in the snow, no one ever gets it. Some probably random driver in the spring probably drives by and gets all that money. So yeah. ironically, no one gets money in either film because— It's Llewellyn Moss. Yeah, Llewellyn Moss got the case. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's so great. 
the, the, the movies are full of characters who are greedy as hell. No one gets any money. Yeah. I, I love it. And it, it they're all kind of like antiheroes. There's like no one in this film that you can really like feel like, oh, they're a great person. Donnie, you could say, is like the only- Donnie, okay, yeah. Or Donnie. Yeah. But you just have nothing but pity for him. Shut the F, shut the F up, Donnie. Because Donnie's always like two steps back in the conversation. He was yeah. like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> Mark it down, dude. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is you actually don't see the dude bowl. Yeah. It's always whole, it's always Donnie and Walter the whole movie. And the only time you actually see him, ki- like you could say he's bowling, is in the dance sequence. Like it, he like, but it's not technically. No, yeah. Well, Maud's the one who yeah. bowls it. Yeah, exactly. He's teach. He's like helping her bowl. Yeah. That's the only time you ever actually see the dude bowl in a bowling alley. Another example ironic. of great ir- irony in the film. Yeah, that's that's a great point. But we actually, James and I, we grew up bowling. Oh yeah, dude. And we we had our own bowling balls, but it wasn't. 10 pin yeah. like in this movie okay, so yeah. so in, it, yeah. in new england and in canada we have they do have the big ball 10 pin bowling with you throw two balls and you have the big fat pins the huge ball and the balls with the holes in that's them. called yeah. 10 pin bowling that's the most common around america but in new england we also have candle pin bowling and it's also in canada and i think maybe in the midwest too where the balls are much smaller they're about the size of a softball the pins are much thinner they're very they're like the size of this ball yeah, they're right very here. skinny and, and they're then, tall and they're tall and so you get three Bowls instead of two. Three throws. Per, three throws per box. So it's it's different. That's because it's played. harder to knock them all down. Yeah, it's, it's it's much harder. It's way easier to throw that big fat ball. And it's yeah. a lot more fun. But yeah. but I loved candlepin bowling. Yeah. So that's definitely that's something we grew up with. And that's why I love this movie. It's ironic we never watched it. Our brothers, I don't think, were ever really into Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. And so I I actually didn't get into Big Lebowski until I was an adult. Yeah, we grew up in bowling alleys. Yeah. Like we played, we bowled every weekend. I, I feel like we would have really loved this movie as kids. Yeah. It's something we'd never watched. As, like it, ironically, we didn't watch this a lot growing up. Yeah, no, but never, but I no. think like, and I I honestly was pretty late to Lebowski. I was too. I was and like I a teenager. Knowing it so well now, I'm like I can't believe I never watched this movie until like I was like 20. Because that's what I mean. Like Fargo's famous, but Lebowski's more of a cult movie. Definitely. It's yeah. a cult classic. Yeah. It's so crazy how big it is because uh, the the character of the dude in Lebowski, just the big Lebowski the movie, it's so loved. There's a there's a, a annual festival where people dress up as the dude and there's it's a big concert and it's uh, the dude has his own dates. It's, it's March sixth. It's called the Day of the Dude. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff Bridges even even plays that he's even played Music at some of the concerts. Yeah, he's in a great past. musician. And uh, they, if anyone's seen Crazy Heart. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, and so according to the Dude's Paper, which is the official Dude newspaper, the official publication. So the Day of the Dude is celebrated, and there's also a Dude religion called Dudism. And uh, people who are part of this religion call themselves Dudists. <laughs> <laughs> and on March sixth every year, they have white Russians watch Lebowski and then go bowling. And then also, so Dudism was founded in 2005 by an American journalist. And the official name of this church is the Church of the Latter-day Dude. <laughs> and despite its name, the comedic origin, occasional criticism of the religion, Dudism isn't regarded as a parody, but as a real religion. And they basically, it's like a, a, a state of mind of kind of like um, Taoism, of Buddhism-esque. So it's like it borrows like... They actually do practice it, but they borrow from other religions, and they they basically like think like, oh, this is like how the dude lives his life, so it must be like kind of like that religion. He just smokes jays and chills in the tub. Yeah, <laughs> drinks white Russians. But that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. 
And the dude is obviously such an iconic character. People don't even haven't even seen the Big Lebowski. They know the dude. They know who the dude is. They can picture it in their head. They've seen photos of him all over the place for over the years. You know, posters and everything. And the the term dude wasn't really that big until the nineties. It was the the term dude has gone through different meanings. It, it originated in the UK and began began cropping up in popular culture. Did it mean the same thing in the UK? Yeah. No. No. It started out as something different. Uh, it was uh, the, it was uh, it meant skirt in Scottish. It was the name for it's like it was like duddis or some duddis duddist, and that meant like a man's skirt. And then it just uh, evolved into what we know it is today. But in popular culture, it was still growing in the eighties. In the eighties, it really took off, especially with um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of this this movie with um, uh, Bill and Ted. Obviously, they say dude all the time. You forgot the name of Bill and Ted's <laughs> <Stop>. Excellent Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> the way you said it, it was like a foreign film. Like, oh, I, I can't remember the I, name. I, I, can't, remember, I can't remember the name of this film on the IFC, IFC channel on the Criterion Channel. Oh, what was it called? <laughs> I Excellent. Ha- I, I hold that as high regard as you know as foreign <laughs> films. It's a great movie. But so the the term dude was getting popularized in the eighties, and I think with this movie really solidified dude as being a commonplace term. And now, like, we grew up saying dude constantly. I always always assumed that dude was super common at the time. But, yeah, I mean, you could probably yeah. say this helped it out a lot. Yeah. And the dude, obviously, great character. But I also love Walter. Walter's you know? amazing. John Goodman's so, so good in this movie. This guy can do anything. It's so funny when you watch it and you also realize that he's silly in Monster Inc. Because <laughs> <laughs> this character's insane. He's wildly funny. He's obsessed with his tour in Vietnam. He's a Vietnam War vet. He relates every situation, every conversation to Vietnam and the lives that were lost in Vietnam. <laughs> He's overly confident. He gets them all into more and more trouble. And like he, <laughs> every dilemma that he inserts himself into in the dude's life, amateurs, he, he, he approaches it like he's like the ultimate warrior, the ultimate soldier, despite the fact that he has like no skills really, or maybe at the end of the, end of the film you could say he yeah. proves himself, but like he's never successful at what he's trying to do. Fucking amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps saying, he's like, he's like laughing to himself. He's like, fucking amateurs. Bunch of amateurs. <laughs> he just ruins everything. Ruins everything. So, and, and I love when um when he before the drop off when the dude goes to pick him up and then he's he goes into the driver's seat. He's like, "Where are you going?" He's like, "I got this, dude." <laughs> he's like, "Give him the ringer. It's my stinky undies." But it's ironic. He he throws a ringer to what we find out is a ringer. Yeah. So it's there's never any money. So there's so much irony in this film. It's so fun. Yeah, and I love the costume. He's always wearing his dog tags. <laughs> yeah. But when Walter pulls out the gun in, on Smokey. When Smokey crosses the line because he, <laughs> when he's bullying, <laughs> oh my god, that's 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 such a crazy scene. It is so funny, it's unbelievable. And then the cops show up in the background when him and Walter are talking in the car. It's so ridiculous. It, it's such a great moment for the character. And I love the bowling alley because obviously yeah, yeah. we love bowling alleys. Bowling's one of my favorite things to do in the world. But also, it's it's like the second storyline of the film is the bowling tournament that's happening yeah. at the time and. It's it has nothing to do with the plot of the movie of the kidnapping or anything, but it's constantly cross cut and both sequences and timelines are going on together. And even though Jesus, that character has nothing to do with the plot really, and even though Tutoro is so funny, that's what the Coen Brothers do. They have these characters you could say that don't really add to the plot. Same thing with Mike Yaganita. He doesn't need to be in the movie. You could say, even though there's a reason for him to be there, but it helps build the world. It helps build the characters. It helps us create the the tone of the film and and adds so much to the soul of the film, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I it seems like it's the perfect hobby for the dude. It's like the most relaxed sport 
even more relaxed than golf. And you don't have to be an athlete yeah. to, to bowl and be exactly. a great bowler. Anyone can anyone can be a good bowler. You don't need to be in shape and you spend most of your time sitting down, you know? So it's just like a perfect thing for the dude to be obsessed with. Because yeah. like even when he's at home, he's listening to tapes of bowling, like just the sound yeah, effects of like bowling. The playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> it's just great. It's just perfect for the dude. It's like obviously and I read that um the backstory for the dude is that he is an heir to the person who created the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and so he, he received an inheritance from that person who died, and now he's run out of the money. So that's why he's never had a job. He never had to that's work. pretty funny. Um, there's so many other great characters. So the Big Lebowski, played by David Huddleston. Really great character, very funny. Um, and then his assistant, Brand, played Hoff. by Philip Seymour Hoffman. The Hop is so good in this movie. I feel like he steals every scene he's in. He's perfect as like this weaselly, uppity guy who like thinks that his boss and employer is this very wealthy and important man where really it's the exact opposite where the Big Lebowski isn't really doesn't have anything to his own name. It's really all of his ex-wife's money. It's He's really all, talk. all of his daughter's money. Maude, who has maybe the funniest film interest I've ever it's seen in my life. It's the best entrance ever. It's so, it's, so it's great. great because Lebowski shows up at her big apartment. <laughs> it's like empty. There's weird noises and like breathing going on. And then all of a sudden she comes flying like in the shadows. Like, like it looks like she looks like she's going to stab him, but she's just painting. <laughs> and people are flinging her across the ceiling. Yeah, it's so funny. Because it's, it's a parody of pretentious artists. Yeah. It's, it's like she's flying on a... On a ceiling with ropes to paint. It's based on a real artist. Is it really? A real woman did that, <laughs> and she was like a famous painter in New York. <laughs> so it's based on a real thing. Julian Moore is so great as Maude. The Her accent, the way she talks, it's perfect. Like the snobby, yuppie, does rich. The, does the female form make you uncomfortable? <laughs> vagina. Does the word vagina make you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> vagina? <laughs> oh, my God. She's really great in this movie. It's one of my favorite roles of hers. And you, you can see... When I watch Coen Brothers movies, you can see a lot of early Paul Thomas Anderson tone. Yeah, and that's I get why that. I think I think that PTA is has always been a massive fan of the Coens, which is why he's even cast some of their usual actors like William H Macy a the few Hoff. times in The Hoff, and then and then um, Julian Moore a couple of times. So I think that he I feel definitely there's like a kinship between. PTA's early movies and the Coen Brothers dark comedies. I completely like Boogie Nights feels very totally yeah. similar to like Lebowski. Definitely, you know, and what I mean? Punch Drunk Love, yeah, um, and and Heart Eight as well, yeah, like Fargo. I, I could see that for sure. Definitely, and then Peter Stormare as Nihilist Number One. That's his literally his character <laughs> name, but also Carl Hungus is like the in the porno. <laughs> the porno is so funny. The cable's out. Oh, what's he gonna do? You can you can only you can only imagine what happens next. He fixes the cable. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I, I just I love the cast of characters in this movie. Tara Reid is Bunny, yeah, like yeah, she, Tara, yeah, who came before out, she blew up. Was this a like ninety eight so post is, American Pie? This is when number one came out. Wait, number one right. came out in ninety eight, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're or right. maybe even earlier. It might. It could have been earlier. American Pie number one. Let me look it up real. It quick. It might have been ninety eight. I'm curious. I'm, I guess, but she was a huge star for like five straight years. She was big time. Nineteen ninety nine American Pie. Ninety nine. Okay. Okay, you're right. No, I was wrong. I, I was wrong. I mean, you're you're right that it was I mean, later, I was right that it was later. Okay, yeah, yeah, yes, I did say that. Yeah, but she's solid as Bunny in this. She perfectly. Cast. I love how she ended up just she was just went on vacation with her friends. And the nihilists cut off their yeah. girlfriend's toe <laughs> because they thought they were gonna get money. Again, another problem solved by cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, there was never any money again. Mm -hmm. And I love I love the Jesus character. I did you know John Turturro made a Jesus movie? 
Of this character? Yeah, last I year. I had no idea. I mean, I this year it came out. It came out on VOD. I gotta look that up. He made a film. I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's the character 30 years later. And he's Is still bowling? I I think so, yeah. But he's not, like, as ridiculous. I think they made it a new, new, more nuanced approach. But although I'm not sure that it could work because he's a pedophile. Yeah, it's true. So I don't think that it could... I, I, I don't think the it was a good idea to make it. The but Jesus Rolls. The Jesus Rolls, yes. Yeah, you didn't see trailers for 20% it? 20% of Rotten Tomatoes yeah. came out in February 2020. Yeah, okay, last year it came out. Wow, it has a pretty good cast. Like, Yeah, what? it's got a, Who's the lead actress in it? It's the, his romantic interest. Audrey uh, Tatao from, yeah, yeah, from yeah. Emily. Tattoo. Yeah. Tattoo. And then yeah. Susan Sarandon, John Hamm, Pete yeah. Davidson, Christopher Walken. Wow, he must yeah. have a lot of friends for well, sure. Well, yeah, he's John Turturro. He's yeah, a great he's guy. super cool. But I just think it was a bad idea to make a movie about a pedophile. Yeah, you can't do that. Because yeah. the character's hysterical, but when you learn he's a pedophile, you're like, yeah. Jesus. It's a better ass. <laughs> Jesus. Eight-year-olds. Exactly. Eight-year-olds, dude. <laughs> and you never forget it. But that scene, the flashback, because the Coen brothers rarely do something like flashbacks. Yeah. But it, was, it works because it's a really funny joke. Of seeing Jesus walk through the neighborhoods, having to tell his neighbors that he's a a, a a convicted sex offender, and they let you use your imagination as to what happens when he opens the door. Exactly, it's so funny. So, what is white White Russians vodka, milk, and milk in Kahlua. Kahlua? All right, did you have to make those a ton as a bartender? As a bartender? No, drinks like that's not like a common drink, really. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a fad drink in the '90s, but I don't think I've ever made. A, a white Russian that someone asked for. Kahlua people ask for sometimes, yeah. but it's not a common drink that people have, you know. I think I think that's more of like a home drink to make because can you really trust milk at like a no bar? No way. Whenever I – because James and I used to both uh, work in restaurants, and whenever someone would order something with cream, and every once in a while people would order a white Russian, and I'd be like – you really want restaurant cream? And it's like, come on. It's well, I'm sure most restaurants, if they have to put cream in a drink, they're using the little, like the coffee mate ones that they but get for We coffee. never did in any of the restaurants I did. They were always like old cartons that had been sitting in the walk-in fridge. But yeah, man, you can't trust the milk and cream that's in restaurants, especially when alcohol is involved because it masks if it's rotten exactly. or if it's gone bad. Yeah. But I love, I love the idea of the white Russian with the dude. He drinks so many of them, <laughs> like it, he's like in the limo, he's drinking it, and then he gets pulled. Watch, into, dude, I got a drink. He pulls it into the other limo. <laughs> That's so funny. He gets kidnapped out of a limo into another limo. It's so great. And then when he gets to Mod's loft, he's like, "Do you have a any white? Do you have any Kahlua?" It's like everywhere he goes, he needs to drink a white Russian. And it's the thing amazing. is, Kahlua is not like common to have at home. Like not I, at all. I've had like a Kahlua kick before. Like I was, yeah. I was good. I was like, "Ah, oh, the Kahlua is bomb." Yeah. With some milk, it's like a chocolate milk liquid yeah, yeah, drink. Yeah. You know, it's delicious. But like. I I don't know many people that just have Kahlua on hand. Yeah, it's great. If they even have a bar set up at their house. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. But it's just a funny character trait for the for the, for the dude for sure. But also Jeff Bridges, he actually imbues a really great performance. It's really great behavior of the dude. It's something that he does a bunch of times is like when he's in a situation where he's losing an argument. And he just gives up because that's it. that's the dude. He just if if he's he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to keep fighting. He'll just like you know what? screw you. And what he does is he puts his sunglasses on. You'll see that he does it when he's when he's arguing with the Big Lebowski, when he's talking to the police officers, and a couple other times where you know when he's losing the argue the conversation, he just you know what screw this. Put my sunglasses on. You have my minimal attention now, and I'm gonna sit back in this chair. And that's it. He does that a lot, and that's a really great behavioral tick that Jeff Bridges imbued in the character. 
Yeah, I think that alludes to what the stranger's talking about, especially at the end of the film and the first time we meet him, you know, where uh, I, I take pride knowing that, like, someone like that's out there taking it easy for all of our sinners <laughs> out there. Sam Elliott's amazing, amazing voice. He's like, got the best voice ever. He's got the best voice and, like, best hair. Like, yeah. the thickest hair and yeah. thickest facial hair yeah. I've ever seen in my life. I'm jealous of that guy's hair. Man, that guy's yeah. got a mop on his head yeah. still. But that guy's voice is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's it's such a great choice for the stranger, who obviously you can interpret as being God. Do you, is that how you interpret him? Yeah, that's, that's how I interpret him. I interpret him as the Coens, as the storytellers. Oh, that's pretty good. As the, as the ones telling the story. But how come he brings up the cussing? Because I guess because that is the only In way sinners. to tell the story. Yeah. I think it's more of like a, a... It could be, yeah. It could be God. A metaphor of Jesus or God. Yeah. I, I I like to think of it as he's the storyteller. Because I sometimes look at the dude and I, I see like it's maybe that's an interpretation of Jesus in a way. The dude is Jesus. Yeah, I mean, even the character design is similar to Jesus. You know, he's got the long hair, the beard. He's got a cloak. He's got, he's got the sandals. He's got the sandals. That's what I mean. That's so, so, like, he's. I always see it as an interpretation of Jesus in a way. Who's Judas? Who's Judas in the yeah. movie? Uh, well, Maude is Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Come on. Jesus and Mary Mags were just friends, Anthony. Yeah, it's just friends. They were just friends. Just friends. This is blasphemy, <laughs> what you're insinuating, that they were more than, that they were more than buds. <laughs> They're just best buds. He <laughs> yeah, helped you right. get through, through some tough times. Then the big the big Lebowski is Judas, the betrayer. The big Lebowski. Yeah, you can say that. Because he set him up to, to for fail. the scheme. Yeah, yeah, you can say it. But, but Judas was a friend of Jesus, if you want to get into Catholicism. They were, oh, let's get he, into he Catholicism. He was a disciple. The yeah, big Lebowski is a disciple of the, of the... I'm just saying. I know. Well, you're saying the dude is Jesus. But you, but you said he betrays him. He doesn't. He barely betrays him. He, yeah, he, he does. He sets, he, they're he, not he friends. Com- he completely betrays okay, him. he betrays him, but He like, sets him up on a job to find, to, to be the courier, for, yeah, even yeah. though he scammed him the but whole time. He's not betraying a That's, friend. Well, I never said they were friends. But you said he was Judas. A Judas character. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to die. You're gonna, I'm going to betray you. Whoa. <laughs> what are you going to do? I don't know. It'll be something good. It'll be a great betrayal. That's a weird threat to say to someone. I'm going to betray you. Someday I'm going to betray you, Anthony. <laughs> I have the high ground. <laughs> oh, I hate you. And um, the, the Big Lebowski is... <laughs> Without a doubt, the Cohen's most creative film, uh, and they got into surrealist territory with the with the two dream sequences, and it's something they've never done since. Well, you can say Hail Caesar is similar to the the gutterball sequence with with the uh, the classic Hollywood musical numbers and stuff. Yeah, like but that. that's just a production of. A I know, film. but still, it looks similar. Yeah, you know? but I'm talking I'm talking like surrealist, like it's not real. Yeah, um, flying I, over Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, I think that. The, they had so much creativity. I would have loved to see them do something. I would love to see them do something else like that again, because mm-hmm. uh, it's really well done. It's super funny. The the Deacons really crafted it perfectly. One of my favorite shots of all time, of all time, is the POV inside the bowling ball when it's rolling down the alley and it gets to the bo- and it hits the pins because Deacons just keeps the camera in it and it makes you dizzy every time you see it and make and you feel like you're going up and down it's really an amazing shot but also the detail of the shot where Maud yeah. is at the front of the lane she had bowled the ball so you can yeah. even see Maud in her green coat it's an it's an unbelievable practical effect that I'm sure Deacons had a lot of input in uh it's just I would and I would love to see Deacons do more stuff like that if he had done if they all of these guys had done more like 
surrealist films, I think it could, they could have come up with some really interesting stuff. Yeah, they got just very creative. The brilliant minds of these the three guys, especially even like the shot of during the, the gutter ball sequence where the dude like comes around that corner is that enormous yeah. wall that he's dancing in front of and the huge shadow. It's like really cool. It's almost like yeah. a Beetlejuice looking movie yeah. like shot. Exactly. I really love it. I think they they're so creative and. Deacons being a practical filmmaker and a practical lighter lit it beautifully, but that bowling ball shot is really astounding. Yeah. And that entire sequence is so much fun. It's, it's great. It is is super funny. Amazing production design. And I had never noticed, but because we watched it recently, but Mods dressed in the same outfit as one of the statues in the Big Lebowski's home. Same outfit, except this shoes has the bowling balls on her chest, but otherwise it's like the exact same outfit as oh, that in the statue. Dream sequence, yeah, like the Trojan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's outfit. a statue. At, when Brand opens the safe, there's a, a bronze statue wearing that outfit, and I was like, oh, that's what Mod wears. But I ultimately like the end of Big Lebowski too, because we get like the twist ending where we find out that you know there was never any money. Bunny never kidnapped herself. It was all a joke. There's phone books inside the Ringer briefcase. Um, it's just like a, a funny, clever twist, to put a, a cherry on top of the great film in general. What's yeah. your What's your favorite scene in Lebowski? My favorite scene? Yeah, in the Big Lebowski. Wow, you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> you better be ready, man. Well, what's the your trail's coming? Let me think. Yeah, <laughs> you say yours first, and I'll think. I think that my favorite scene might be uh, the Larry scene with the car. No, I was just about to say when he destroys the car. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was just thinking that. This is what happens, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's so funny. It's so funny. Walter's so ridiculous. Yeah. And then when he when he gives the speech for Donnie with the ashes, <laughs> he brings up Vietnam again. The dude's like, what's up with that shit with like, what are Vietnam? You talking what are you about, talking man? about, man? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and then he they meet the uh, the writer, Larry's dad. Yeah. <laughs> he's it's an honor iron, to meet you, he's sir. He's iron lung. He's like, I just want to say, huge fan. <laughs> And she's like, he's like, he asks um his wife, is is he still working? And she's like, he has health problems. He's <laughs> <laughs> in an iron lung. <laughs> so funny. And I also, I think that the, the scene, the first break-in scene of the dude's apartment is really a perfect scene. Of you, get, really you learn how the, who the character is, what he's like in this crazy situation. And it's super funny. I think that's a perfect scene. And his involvement in the entire scenario of this fake kidnapping is because he wanted the big Lebowski to compensate him for a carpet that got peed on that really tied the room together yeah. by the people that were looking for him. So, so the entire just, yeah, the only reason why he's even involved is because these idiots broke into his house and then he wanted his rugged place. He doesn't want money. He just yeah. wants his carpet. That's all he wants. Well, he wants money. Not really. Yeah, I mean, when he's in the Big Lebowski's limo, he's asking if he could get the the ten thousand right there. But really, Lebowski's handing him the envelope with the finger with the toenail and the toe in yeah, it. Yeah, actually, you're right. He does yeah. want more. the dude always wants well, money? Well, because he's got he's well, he's offered money for yeah. the job. Yeah. But his involvement in the entire plot is because yeah. he just wants his carpet. Oh yeah, that. But he does want money because he has none. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got rent due. Yeah. He's got a little. He's a little greedy. <laughs> Not very greedy though. He's a little. Just a little greedy. Hey, if someone offered you t ten grand to do something, you'd probably oh, yeah, you'd totally. probably ask for it. Hundred percent. Even though you failed at achieving it. <laughs> because Walter threw out a, a ringer and, and jumped out of the car. <laughs> when he jumps with out an like, Uzi, <laughs> with an Uzi. <laughs> oh my god! When the submachine gun just goes off and then the dude crashes his car. What did the dude crashes his car when he's being followed by the the beetle? Yeah, by yeah. The blue beetle. <laughs> and then he drops the he drops the joint and then he crashes into a dumpster. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, it's so funny. And the music in this is great. It's a great soundtrack. T-Bone Burnett actually produced the soundtrack and picked all the songs. And they obviously famously collaborated together in Crazy Heart, and he helped produce the music that Jeff Bridges made for that movie. So they've actually been long friends for a while. So that's a great collaboration relationship those two guys have. T-Bone always brings a lot to the movies he, he works on. Yeah. The movie does get a little sad when Donnie dies. I feel so sad yeah. for Donnie because he's just an innocent guy. But it's so funny, like, when they're at the mortuary. <laughs> <laughs> it's our most modest option. <laughs> this is our most modestly priced urn. <laughs> he's like, it's $180. <laughs> or anything else you have. <laughs> but that, there are Ralphs nearby. But the scene is great when the nihilists come to get money yeah, from yeah. them because they don't they think there was actually money involved, but then they're telling them, there was never any money. Well, we still want the money, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> we kicked their ass. <laughs> like their fire... The car on fire <laughs> but they're standing like in a band pose with like spandex <laughs> outfits playing the playing the music oh my god and i love that scene because the first time i watched this movie i had the suspicion that walter was just full of bs yeah about nam but then and i thought he was just like lying about it all but then when he beat the crap out of these guys i was like okay this guy definitely wasn't in, in in war in nam in nam nam yeah that, that seems really funny yeah he oh, messes man. them up, but poor Donnie. Yeah, poor Donnie. It's always it's sad whenever I watch him pass. <laughs> but yeah, I love Big Lebowski. Got anything else? <laughs> I'm good. I got trivia. All right, let's do some fun facts and trivia for the Fargo Big Lebowski first. and do Fargo. Yeah, let's do Fargo first. The actors in Fargo used a book called How to Talk Minnesotan to help with their accents. In the movie Fargo, when Carl calls Jerry on the phone for the deal to be finished, he tells him, 30 minutes and we'll wrap this thing up, Jerry. From that moment on, the film's running time is exactly 30 minutes until it ends. Blood has been spilled, Jerry. <laughs> Greer Grimson, Pierce Stormare's character, has 18 lines of dialogue in the entire movie and never actually says more than a complete sentence at one time. By comparison, Carl, Steve Buscemi's character, has over 150 lines of dialogue. Approaching Brainerd from the south, which is the town that Marge is sheriff of, you see a statue of Paul Bunyan with a sign reading, Welcome to Brainerd. In reality, Brainerd has no such statue. Paul Bunyan Amusement Park, located just outside Brainerd, had a huge statue of Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. The park is now at the old farm between Brainerd and Garrison. Don't you know? For the Big Lebowski, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, John Goodwin stated that the dude referring to the Big Lebowski as a human paraquat was one of the only improvised lines to make it into the final film. Virtually every other line, including every man and dude, was scripted by the Coens. They never really allow improvisation in their movies. Before filming a scene, Jeff Bridges would always ask the Coen brothers, did the dude burn one over on the way? And if they said he had, Jeff Bridges would rub his knuckles in his eyes before doing a take to make his eyes appear bloodshot. John Turturro originally thought that his character, Jesus, was going to have a bigger role in The Big Lebowski. When he read the script, he realized that the part was quite small, however. The Coen brothers let him eventually come up with a lot of his own ideas for the character of Jesus, like shining the bowling ball and the scene where he dances backwards in slow motion, which he says was inspired by Muhammad Ali. In the clean television version of the film, the famous line by Walter, This is what happens when you F a stranger in the ass was changed to, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. It's frequently cited as one of the most creative edits ever made for a film to be aired on television. All right, that wraps our episode on Fargo 
and The Big Lebowski. We really hope you enjoyed this one as much as we did. We love the Coen brothers. We love talking about these films. Let us know what your favorite Coen brother films are in comment section of the YouTube video, on Instagram, wherever. Thanks so much for tuning in around the world. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. The dude abides. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.